So I think it's important to understand the trade-offs in each of these cases, right? So for example, you know, we sort of know what would happen if you turned off, let's say, ads on Google search, how much more, how much better would it be for people? If you turned off ads on YouTube, how much would it be better for your people? But you also understand the costs, okay, how much less money would we make? And so finding that balance, right, across your product, which is when this happens, what is the trade-off and what am I giving up is super important. My name is Isabel, and this is your Product Thinking Toolbox. Ataji Salgar is the Director of Product Management at YouTube and Google. With an impressive background in technology and media, Satyajit has led a ton of teams and scaled multiple 1 billion plus Mao and 100 million plus Mao products while driving innovation and creativity across various dimensions. Currently, he spearheads YouTube shopping initiatives, focuses on live shopping, search and discovery, as well as initiatives for merchants and creators. With a wealth of experience in Google, he's played vital roles in Google Discover, Google Search, YouTube Live, and games, and serves as a mentor and speaker at renowned graduate schools. And also a fun fact that I found out is that you're a father of two and a fan of Ted Lasso, so keep me on as this, Satyajit. Welcome that to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, I guess now now that we're on Zoom, you can clearly see like like I, I think it's no longer like it's pretty obvious, but yeah. <laughs> definitely a big Ted Lasso fan too. And do you feel like your love for Ted Lasso influences like how you approach your dynamic with your kids and? I think it I think it was more Ted Lasso was like, oh, see, you can be successful doing this too. And I was like, oh, this is I I I it was a way to like mirror what I felt like some of what I was doing, but I think Ted Lasso sort of ups it up dramatically and shows like you can be successful being kind, which I really like. But yeah, I think I think it definitely it's a show that teaches like believing in things and patience, which with kids is very, very necessary. So I think it, it works for that. That's fair. And I, I assume, and, and the reason why I found this out was I remember seeing on your LinkedIn that you had a post about how Tet Lasso also has a big influence on just like leading teams and also how you can show up. For there's a there's a talk that I need to do about how you can be a better PM following these 10 things from Ted Lasso. Like, I just need to write that. Talk. Like, I, I know whatever that talk would be. I need to actually write that down and give it at some point. Right. Well, 100%. we'll have to do uh, part two. We'll just have to go through each of the steps because I think with just like product in general, it's always just this weird gray area of what do PMs really do? Are we product owners? Are we, you know, yeah. project managers, et cetera? So a hundred percent, we'll have to chat about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. So let's kickstart because we're talking about the industry and we're talking about mm -hmm. just like your wealth of experience. As you can tell, especially with Google, especially with YouTube, we can see right now that AI and machine learning are transforming products, right, across mm -hmm. industries. And YouTube and Google is in, an is in an interesting space because you're kind of parked in between a plethora of industries. So mm -hmm. because of that, how has YouTube and Google incorporated AI and machine learning to enhance your ca product capabilities and improve your user interactions? So it's interesting. So let me maybe break this up into, into two parts, right? So, so I spent a lot of time on Google search and I think just sort of, and I spent, I'm on YouTube now, but, but before I went to search, I was on YouTube as well. So, so I spent a bunch of time on YouTube. The interesting part is, you know, if you use AI in like the broadest sense of the word, right? Like I think it has been critical to you, 
to both YouTube and search for a really long time. So I think like, like, so, so a lot of engineers in particular, when you kind of say like, oh, you know, it's changed now, go like, no, but it's been important for like forever. Right. So I think I remember like, especially for our discovery and recommendation systems for ads, like AI has been critical to like pushing the success of like YouTube and ads for forever. Obviously, sort of, there, there are a bunch of external papers about how, you know, rank brain, which is sort of some of our ranking for search has been a critical signal for a long time. So in some ways, it's always sort of been there. But I think what's happened in the last, let's call it eight, nine months, maybe a year in particular, is the advances with large language models in particular have been so significant, particularly for a product like search, but also things like YouTube. It's pretty obvious what what will happen next, right? So I think some combination of large language models and what we're seeing with with imagery and video being being generated. So generative AI as a whole, I think, just is is a significant change. And you can see it already, right? Like you can sort of see, I mean, search looks if you're if you're opted into what's called like the search generative experience, it is, you know, transformatory for how you use search. It's like, you know, I think when people saw where Chat GPT was, it accelerated a bunch of work. That otherwise would have taken you know, much longer. And similarly, I think for YouTube, there's a sense that like the creative tools that you have are as a creator would change dramatically with AI. How should we lean into it? But I think like AI sort of now affects not just sort of the big things, but also the small things. There are little things you can do dramatically better. And I think you know they they've always been around in the back ends of the system, but I think now some of those will make their way to consumers more e- more easily. For example, I think YouTube just released maybe a couple of weeks ago this feature that you know sort of starts, su- writes a text summary of the video, which it can now do because a lot of language models allow that, and lets you use YouTube more efficiently. So I think I think it's going to be transformatory for in small ways and big ways in, in how we sort of use a lot of these products. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be transformatory in sort of what we build, but also how we build it. Like like I think. You know, PMs will use AI very differently, even as we come up with with things. Well, let's let's unpack that a little bit because yeah. AI and machine learning can be pretty complex technologies to integrate. And you've seen—I don't know if you've seen, but I've seen a lot of organizations and businesses kind of using AI and ML as the buzzword of we use mm-hmm. AI and ML, so therefore we have value. But oh. how do you approach, let's say, explaining the value and explaining kind of the impact of AI-powered features to users, especially you mentioned that it might be obvious, but yeah. maybe to users it might not be apparent. For example, search is one of yep. those big questions of like, AI, what is the difference? So I think in an ideal world, I think, you know, when you're building products, you don't really think about, you shouldn't need to explain AI to your users. I think you should you should be able to explain how you're satisfying their needs better and how you're solving problems for them. It may be that AI is now the tool or some some set of tools that you're using to like solve it, or you're using frankly like sort of generative AI to come up with the ideas to solve their stuff. But I think people can be extracted away from that. I think what happens sometimes is sometimes you need to explain to consumers what's happening, right? So I think, for example, like you've, you've, we've now seen, you know, sort of in some cases they're demos, in some cases people are opt-in, but there are these, you can use AI to help you write a document or write an email. And I think there people know that, you know, this is, I sort of know what's happening, but what you need to explain to them is, hey, we're, you now need to know how to, we'll help you write the thing, 
but now you know need to know how to edit it. We, you need to know how to like teach it your style, all of that stuff. So I think that's where consuming, explaining it to consumers comes in. But really the way to think about it is, okay, how is this a tool that now helps me either make the thing that I was giving them better or like just come up with something new to satisfy the same need. And I think that for me, for me, AI is like, it's not just what we build, it's how we build. Like I, I, I was telling folks a little while ago, it's changed how I sort of brainstorm. For example, it was a lot easier. Like earlier, I would just sit and, you know, sort of doodle with paper and then research on the side. Now I find that, you know, if you use, you know, either ChatGPT or Bard as like a, a thought partner, I, I find like, it's like, oh, what about this? And like, can you compare those two tables and tell me what's happening? And then you go like, okay, now I'll sit and think about what that data says. I find that is almost, like, I, I find I was able to make like, I, I make dramatically more progress like in a couple of hours than I used to. So I think it's all of those things. Right. I, I think that it's going back to your point about making sure that we're highlighting some sort of value to help enable users That's to right. get what get to the outcome that they want to accomplish, essentially. Yep. That's right. Yeah. And also one other thing that you pointed out was like, even as PMs, sometimes we should probably play around with these tools because it's so easy for us to just jump on the bandwagon of, you know, new feature new type of technology, let's just embed it into our tech stack as fast as possible without actually what you mentioned, using BART, using ChatGPT to be that thought partner. Yeah, no, I think I think to your point, like the thing that you mentioned earlier, right? there is a little bit of, there was there was a team that I, I used to work with that I was curious and I was, I was chatting one of the PMs there. And I was like, oh, you know, let me, let me see how, like how's AI change your plans? And so he sent me some stuff. And I was like, oh, this looks a lot like your old plans with the word AI sprinkled in. He's like, you're not wrong. We're still working on it. So I think, I think to some extent, there's this general, so, so, as you mentioned, right, there's this general like, oh, we have to use AI piece. And I think some of that will die down. And so as, as that, as then people will figure out, okay, how is this actually useful? It's like, you know, every every other startup that I, that I talk to is now an AI startup. And I was like, wait, you're doing the same thing you did like six months ago. But, but I think, again, part of it is the story, part of it is capturing the excitement. It's very natural, it's very human. But I think a lot of it is, as people understand more deeply what it can do for them, they'll, they'll have better ideas, come up with better insights and go from there. I actually want to pull onto one of the threads yeah. that you mentioned about experiencing the product yourself, having AI sprinkled into the mix. What is What do you think about the concept of dog fooding? Do you think that your team does that enough or yeah. not enough? I feel like most of the times things don't dog food enough. Dog fooding is is you you try the thing that you're building before before you release it out in the world. Now I think there's a question of like sometimes are you even the right people to get feedback from? Like I, I let's put this way I think PMs, engineers, people around the product should live their product. I think it's really important. My first almost my first PM job I remember the senior leader on the team asked, and it was an ads product that I, that I was sort of working on at the time, asked like a bunch of people, how many of you have like, like some of you, I was new to the team, but some of them have been working on the product for like a year or so. How many of you actually use this end to end? And the answer was like, no one, like one person. And it was because again, they, they, they were doing their jobs right, but you know, do you, do you naturally, in your world as a PM, run your own ads campaign, debug things? Like, no, you sort of watch other people are doing it, right? And so I think it's really important, even though sometimes it's really hard, to, to use the product you're responsible for 
every single day. So I think using the product, like even before dog fooding, right, is really, really important. Having a feel of that. And then to your point, like, okay, you've got new ideas. Can you dog food it and all that stuff? But the thing I always warn people is sometimes you're not the consumer, right? So, so you should be, dog food data is data, but it's, it shouldn't, like you shouldn't assume that that is like, like, like you should learn from it. It shouldn't be like a gate. For example, there's, there's, I probably can't, I won't go into the details, but there was a product that I was responsible for. Dog food feedback wasn't great, but I was like, wait, we're dog fooding with a bunch of Googlers, not the, not the user for this, not, not the user for this. And by the way, like, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't like dog, you know, the kind of people that opt into a dog food, you get sort of a variance anyway. And so as a result, I was like, okay, you know, I think we can go ahead even despite this dog food feedback, but it is incredibly, incredibly important data. And I think teams that don't dog food actually get into trouble, right? Like if you don't have some way to go back and forth with some set of users. And I think if, you know, as a team, you're not those users or people in your company are not those users, that is a red flag for me. So you need to find some way to do that. And the other end of the spectrum too, it's like, sometimes there might not be the right types of users that experience a product and then hence they don't actually, they aren't providing the right types of inputs for that specific product. But then there's the other hand of sometimes there is a misconception, I guess, of PMs having to be the experts in that specific field mm -hmm. when they get hired. Right. So for example, if it's a medical software, it's like yeah. maybe PM should be a doctor, but actually a lot of the times it's one of the, again, going back to our previous discussion, mental models that a PM yep. uses to make the best decisions at that time. Yep. No, I, that's right. I think you need, I think it's when you, especially if it's not an area that you have domain expertise in, right. It's very hard to like come in and be the expert. And so I think to your point, like then sort of having a set of frameworks that you can apply helps you until like you know you've spent enough time where it feels like okay i i now have expertise in this and, and it's something you know sort of i think i've tried to do on jobs that i've gone on on pms on my team managers as well as i see that sort of tell them like in time you should you're expected to be the expert but again i think you need you need time and and it takes a while sometimes to get there yeah well, you are one of those experts. That's why we're having this conversation, right? Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'm curious to hear your personal take on what types of mental models do you use to develop products at YouTube Shopping? And are there specific mental models that stand out and address, let's say, specifically needs of merchants, creators, and users in this highly competitive space? Yeah, there's... There's a few, but I think the thing, maybe the thing most important in shopping is understanding, you know, understanding the ecosystem and understanding the incentives of the ecosystem and that everyone needs to sort of do well. You, you sort of, you mentioned there's, you know, creators, there's, there's viewers or shoppers. And in the case of, you know, shopping, there's merchants, right? And I think this really like YouTube shopping works only if everyone in that loop is actually you know getting the ROI that they expect, right? Merchants are like, when I invest in YouTube shopping, I get this out of it. Creators actually see either sort of better content being created or more revenue, or they're able to sell. In many cases, you know, creators are also merchants and, and brands, so they're selling their own stuff. 
and viewers need to feel like, oh, I, I got something as a viewer and a shopper on YouTube that I didn't get get anywhere else. So I think you need to sort of, one, one model is to understand, okay, what is the incentive of every sort of party in this? And is the, the strategy that I have, is the offering that we have, is the business model that we have, does it work for each of them? And not just does it work for each of them, is it better than their alternative, right? Like how does it compare with what else they have, right? So I think one of those things about, is it useful? Is it, how does it compare to their alternatives? Why should they consider it for each party is very important. The second thing to think about is very often these things are loops, right? Which is once you have a lot of viewers and they're comfortable watching it with creators, then you get a lot of merchants. And so you need to get those loops going, but there's always a cold start problem, right? And so I think a lot of the test is, okay, what is the safest way to sort of cold start some of these things, right? Like, do you go get the merchants first and say like, hey, like, come on, we've got these creators coming. Do you sort of tell the creators like, no, no, start like selling these products, we'll get these viewers and merchants on to you. How do you do that? And understanding sort of what part of the ecosystem has patience, which part you can sort of come back to and say like, okay, now we've made these improvements come back is really important and understanding, you know, okay, these are, these are people, for example, I can give incentives to for a while and I wouldn't need to in the long run because this will work out. I think that's another sort of mental model that when you're in sort of any dynamic marketplace system, you need to think a lot about, which is how do I get the leaps, loops going and what can I sort of provide a boost to that, you know, once, once goes away, all of this still works. So how do you get flywheels going, especially in this marketplace dynamic is always interesting to think about. That's such a complex problem to solve that I think a lot of orgs struggle with. Firstly, that cold start problem. And then there's almost this inter-reliance between different parts of the marketplace. 100%. How do you even, you mentioned something about patience, you mentioned something about threshold and sensitivity or market sensitivity when you think about prioritizing specific initiatives to unblock that cold start problem within let's say the less or the more sensitive part of the market how do you approach that from a prioritization perspective and also a problem statement perspective i think so this is one of those questions where the details start to matter right which is i think it's it's hard it's hard for me, the answer is different in one kind of marketplace and the answer is different in another kind of marketplace. Right? But I think the main thing to think about is, I'll go back to what can you grease for a while and sort of when you sort of slowly start to pull it away, does, does, this, does the sort of system still work, right? So for example, like, you know, initially, let's say you've got, I'm, I'm gonna make a sim simple example up over here, right? Like, which is, let's say on live shopping, you don't have that many sort of people right now, and but you wanna encourage people to like, hey, you know, do live shopping on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. So the first couple of times you make it easy for them, you reach out, you maybe don't charge them a fee, maybe you give them an incentive. And once they do it, they see like, oh, I'm getting viewers in. And so now, now I'll keep going and doing this. But the other hand, you can't go do it in reverse and, and have a bunch of viewers and say like, oh, look, here's our live shopping destination page. You should show up there. Right. So you need to find that loop. You need to find you need to find what is the best way to get that thing going. 
and you know, I think that the, in the real world, the best example that I see at scale is is you know sort of Uber drivers and and people that want Uber rides. You can sort of tell like how they play with marketplace dynamics and like what sort of incentives they provide when they enter a new city. What do they do? And it's it varies, but like you know now they have this rich playbook of like okay, we recruit this many drivers and we give them these incentives for the first couple of months. We give them guarantees, and so so I think there's like the details of like what what does that particular party need matter, but I think that is the thing that you come up with, right? Like what is a way to like get things started, and I think the important part, and this is where I see a lot of these dynamics sort of fail, is you have to understand how do I get to steady state as fast as possible, right? Because sometimes you feel like oh you know I've got this growing, it's going up into the right, let me keep doing this. But then you know you sort of forget that that incentive has to go away, and you have to make the economics work overall. So to me, that the details start to matter, and how you dive in starts to matter a bunch. Right. So I'm hearing it's almost like that area of making sure that there's stability and incentive is a byproduct of really understanding the user's problems at the start. Yeah. Just what is the outcome that they want to accomplish? And then what yeah. are the incentives that will feed into getting them that boost into that outcome? Yeah. That's exactly right. Understand understand what you want in the steady state and how to get people acting, acting that way. Love it. And that's why I can, we can have a whole conversation about activation and, and like onboarding and getting them started. But I also really want to pull on the thread of that dichotomy between that monetization and user experience, because it sounds mm -hmm. like monetization can be, you know, when you look at PMs, there's a bunch of risks that we have to de-risk, right? And, and it kind of comes from Marty Kagan's book inspired of like yep. that value risk versus viability risk, user experience, usability risk. What challenges do you feel like you face when you're trying to strike the right balance between that monetization piece because you have to bring viability mm -hmm. to business and the user experience and then how do you approach resolving those potential conflicts between these two aspects i think you you have to so let me start saying so i've had to do this a few times so so my well at this point it was a long time ago so so 10 years ago i was the first pm on youtube live streaming so so i came on to start live streaming and at the time we realized, oh, this is kind of expensive. The most important thing we need to do is actually have, make enough money that like, it's, it's the infrastructure works. Otherwise, the way we'd built it at the time, it was just the infrastructure costs of live streaming were really expensive. So then you sort of realize, oh, actually like monetization is critical to even keeping the product alive. Like if you, you know, if you hear, you know, the ads team talk about ads and how they interact with search, there's a strong belief and, and and it's and it's like you know it's it's there's a reason it's it's truly like deeply held is the ads team needs to work and like ads need to work to keep the web open and free right like without that like the you know sort of the web ecosystem itself like doesn't quite hold up so i think you've got to understand the incentives and you've got to understand the trade-off right so roughly that you have to understand the cost of sort of interrupting the user so Let's say, you know, sort of the most common monetization sort of tools are an ad. So you put an ad somewhere on the page or before a video or like a subscription sort of piece where you ask people to subscribe to content or like you have a bunch of variants in the middle, right? So you can have people sort of do fan funding or tips and, and things of that sort. And each of those has a cost, 
and I think you're 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 sacrificing viewers and viewership for sort of money. But I think like YouTube from day one sort of realized like the monetization is required so that creators make sort of money. And so the like without that in the long run, the creators don't come. And so guess what? The site goes away. And by the way, like the, for for that to work, the advertisers need to see value out of the ads. And so it has to work for them. So I think it's important to understand the trade-offs in each of these cases, right? So for example, you know, we sort of know what would happen if you turned off, let's say, ads on Google search, how much more, how much better would it be for people? If you turned off ads on YouTube, how much would it be better for your people? But you also understand the costs. Okay, how much less money would we make? What happens to creators? And so finding that balance, right, across your product, which is when this happens, what is the trade-off? And what am I giving up is super important. Now, I will say like sometimes everything lines up, right? So so the example that YouTube often gives is this notion of you know skippable ads. So you know, if you're lining up user incentives, you can skip the ad, you're lining up advertiser incentives because people that actually watch the ad really want to watch the ad. And it turns out like if this monetizes better, so so you're actually sort of giving creators money as well, right? So that sort of lines up. I sort of say shopping, you know, we're still in the early stages of shopping, but it has the same characteristics, which is when people see a video, like ideally the people watching that, like actually want to watch it. And then I think the act of buying something is satisfying to the viewer, but it's also satisfying to everyone in that ecosystem. So one thing to think about is, can you actually align everything? And you can't align it all the time, but sometimes you try to see, okay, can I align my monetization with either for all my customers or some large set of customers and make make that part of the product. But otherwise, you know, if you're charging the dynamics a little bit, bit simpler. I know you did this already hmm? because I'm trying to grapple my head around this complex, almost like complex mental model relationship of yeah. you have monetization, you have user experiences, you have these loops that are trying to drive said segments cohorts yep. of people into coming back into the product and then you have on top of that making sure that within that monetization piece there is the right types of content that will drive back them back into leveraging youtube or google etc right can you elaborate on the various monetization models and strategies that you use then to strike that balance between generating revenue and then you mentioned that optimal user experience because obviously there's the platform cost of running a good and and stable platform and on top of that enabling that type of infrastructure to scale but then you also have let's say generating revenue talking to your merchants talking to ads like and within ads itself it's like a whole big mountain of yeah a dynamic relationship so from your perspective like how do you like what are the top things that you rely on in terms of principles in finding that balance i think there is having the principles so i used to joke so so i worked on search for a long time and i'd find that every sort of quarter at least one pm on my team would come to me like somewhat upset with like, so by the way, one of the luxuries on, on search is most of the time you don't have to think about monetization, right? Which is teams are really focused on 
hey, we are we're focused on the user, and you know the ads team is 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 you know doing their stuff. But every quarter, like some PMI team would be like, hey, you you know that like I built this feature and now it's doing really well. The queries are growing. Like suddenly ads started showing up on the top of the page, and now like I have to scroll to get to my feature. I'm so upset. And then I was like, hey, you know. Someone's got to pay for lunch, right? So, so it's you just have to understand that. So, I think one is I think having the principles in place is important, right? So, between search and ads, when I worked on on Google Search, like there are very clear principles on where ads can be and what to expect and sort of what is right for users and where features live. YouTube similarly, there's there's extremely clear principles on how much you know sort of we can sort of get in users' way from the content they like, right? You've got to sort of have that balance. And you have to understand that like upsetting the user or giving them the wrong long-term experience is a huge cost, right? Like you might, you know, you can double the ads you serve and maybe sort of make a lot more money, but then, you know, that user is not going to come back. And so we understand that quite clearly. And we sort of teams run experiments to understand the cost of like, okay, if you do this, what happens? If you do this other thing, that what happens? And finding the right point on that curve so that you don't, you sort of give users the experience that they come to expect. And I think Google and YouTube are, are somewhat, I like to think, unique in that people have a lot of love for the brand and have high expectations of the brand. So you can't sort of go too much on the other side. Like you have to sort of respect that. And so, so for me, like it is, you want to find that balance. For most PMs on my team, I sort of remind them that they are on the side of, of the consumer. And so you've got to think about what is the best experience sort of they have. Sometimes I think you can sort of over, over index on one side. And so sometimes you've got to go like, actually, you know what? We need to do more for say merchants for the next couple of quarters so that the balance is back. But I think to me, it's really finding that intricate line that's really important. Experiments tell you, and, and frankly, experiments and intuition sort of tell you when you're doing the wrong thing for a particular party. And I think that's the the piece to sort of come up with, right? Which is, what is the thing that like, sort of, what is that line that you need to make sure you don't cross and everyone in, in, in the ecosystem is actually benefiting from? But to me, like monetization is, I think this notion of building sustainable businesses should be something that you know PMs sort of think about, right? So, which is what is the I need to have this plan that really works in the long run, right? Like, you know, I think the the there's an odd thing where a lot of consumer products, because of the way ads work, because of the way funding happened for a long time in, in startups and all this ecosystem, thought, hey, our job is to get as many users as fast as possible, and then we'll figure something out. I think when you frame things in those terms, you end up in these situations, right? Like it's monetization or growth. I think I think the reality you sort of now especially is is and you sort of see this in 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 the market but it's you sort of have to have a view on okay what am I which dial am I pulling when am I sort of turning up turning one up versus the other you need to understand how they interplay. You and you have a pretty tricky role I think especially as someone who's in more of a leadership position in a huge org like Google and YouTube. Because yeah. if if it was a scale up or a startup and we're talking about turning those dials, it's pretty 
not easy per se, but it's easier than where yes. you are because it's just one or two or three people making the decision. But now you're with trade-offs of like, well, there's the ads team that has their mandates to drive. You have your shopping team, to, right? Yeah. And search. So how have you found in terms of your position in trying to establish those trade-offs and being able to negotiate like real estate space, essentially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think again, it's it's so having to your point, like having sort of detailed principles help, right? Which is, hey, you know, write down like, for example, you know, if we're talking about ads and search, like, where are the ads allowed to go? Like, what are the principles on you? Stuff like that. So I think writing stuff down helps. Also, to your point, I agree. Like, you, your your thing of turning the dial is now like, you need to turn the dial. Like, you need to have like five meetings to turn the dial. Basically, you need to go talk to an org. But I think a lot of the skill as, frankly, as a PM, but, but especially as, as a PM leader, ends up being how good you are at getting those, those dial turn, dials turned quickly. And I think the way you do that is, A, I think it's super important to be transparent on what you're doing, right? So when I've run platform teams, I've told the PMs on my team that are sort of in the platform, like, you know, tell everyone how you're prioritizing things. Right, like make it extremely clear what your rubric is. So if someone comes and says, hey, can you do this? If your answer is yes, you, you say yes, and here's why. If your answer is no, you say like, here's no, and here's why. And by the way, like, if you disagree, like, you know, come come talk to us, but this is our, our rubric. And so I think it's the same thing, right? Which is you have, you make it extremely transparent and clear how you're prioritizing, why you're doing what you want to do. And then you sort of, there's also a relationship building aspect of it, right? Which is, People need to understand that you're someone that is, or your team, or what you're doing is, is principled, and they need to sort of. People are still very human, so so you need to understand their incentives and say like, okay, they they at some point need to trust you, right? Which is they, they need to trust that you are doing the right thing for the company, that you're you're doing the right thing for them, that you won't surprise them, and I think you build that by sort of thinking about what their incentives are, making sure you communicate at the right cadence. But I think that's another PM skill, right? Like, how do you, I, I always say like, like there's PMing and then there's, you need to add a couple of layers for big company PMing. And sometimes you need to unlearn them when you go back to like something smaller or you're as part of a small team, but it's good to have those layers available when you need them. Yeah, I always use the example of when you're in a bigger org, it's a lot more internal storytelling, a lot more stakeholder management, a lot of communicating the, feedback that you get and also yep. the input that you get and basically saying the same thing over and over again in different ways to different people <laughs> right. oh no I, I think the repetition will, will what i find is really important right which is one of my former managers i think borrowed this from someone else which is i think the saying is like repetition doesn't spoil the prayer it's like you just need to like be prepared to like i think eric schmidt in a talk said like he's like i just need to say something like 20 times and then maybe you know when I tell a team something 20 times, then I know it's sort of starting to sink in. And I find that often, right? Which is you write down the principles, but like you need to repeat them very often. You need to remind people a bunch. You need to like understand sort of, you need to understand also just, you know, human biases a little bit. For example, like, again, I'll, I'll give you, I'll just sort of branch off into platform story, which is I, I was... I was relatively new to, to this job and there was this team that wanted us to do something. I really thought that project was worthwhile, but we just didn't have the bandwidth to do it. So I spent 25 minutes explaining to them 
you know, hey, here's what else is on the floor. Here's what we can do. And literally on the way out, I kind of said, listen, I really like your project. I'm going to try my best to see if we can squeeze things in. But, you know, we're still like, we can't do it, but I'm going to try my best. And there was a senior person in the room, a VP, just started laughing on our way out, right? And I was like, what happened? He's like, you realize all they heard was that thing that you said at the end that you're going to try your best. They're like, I was like, no, no, but I spent 25 minutes telling them, like, you know, that I can't do it. And he's like, no, no, but like people, people amplify the thing that they want to hear, right? And so I think since then, you know, sort of being very precise on on sort of what you can commit to, and even even if you have good intentions, is a, is another really important sort of organizational dynamic framework to have. And bias is so real, and especially big orgs and even smaller orgs too. People have yeah. almost like a blind spot to saying, "Oh, that's what I want to hear. I want to latch onto it." And something that I find a that's helpful to even gain leverage in the organization usually is leveraging data. And yep. I'm pretty sure Google and YouTube definitely leverages data and analytics mm -hmm. when it comes to informing your product decisions, because especially decision-making is going to be really crucial when it mm -hmm. comes to being data-driven. How do you measure then success when it comes to product performance and user satisfaction? And then how do you adapt your strategies and communicate those strategies based on the insights and, and yeah, and, and outputs that you gain from those metrics? Yeah, I think being data, I'm trying to remember, I, I don't remember where I heard this phrase from, but like, I think this notion of being data informed versus data driven, I think is important, right? Which is, I think there's two aspects to what you're saying, right? The first aspect is, I think you have to, especially with results, right? Like, I'm still shocked by how many people, teams, startups outside, like teams within Google, teams elsewhere that I talk to, that like, they don't have great dashboards on day one. Right, which is the number of launches I've been on where you know I've asked them like, all right, great, congratulations on the launch. Like, can you tell me what this stat is, this stat is, this stat is? And they'll be like, Yeah, yeah, we're it's like the logging's not quite there, or something's off, or like something's super common. Right. And, and again, I think partially it's because getting that right takes time. And sometimes we don't have the incentives to like we're trying to rush out something and that becomes easy to drop and say, like, do that later. But I think having that on day one is critical. Because you need to have, you need to have an understanding of like, okay, like metrics ultimately and your dashboards are an under, metrics ultimately are sort of an expression of your strategy and if your tactics are working, right? Which is, hey, this is my plan. This is what I want to do. If I do them, these things will change. And because of that, like, here's this bigger number that I want to change. So all of those things, like your leading metrics that you're sort of, North Star metrics, the metrics you publish, all of those really you should ideally have on day one. Now, there's a, the reality is often that slips. And so, but it, you know, I sort of, as PM, like, I feel like, okay, you need some way to like, even if you're just manually pulling that until you have great dashboards, you need to know those numbers, right? So I think being very attuned to that is really important. The second part of data is I think it's important to like deeply understand what people are seeing. You know, think like, what do PMs bring, right? Ultimately we bring good decision-making and deep empathy with consumers. How do you develop that? You sit and watch them do it. But another way to sort of develop that is to see how they use the product. So I think something I love to do is like, you know, look at 
look at sessions, like how are people sort of actually experiencing the product? How are they feeling? Like what sort of, if they type in a search result, what sort of videos do they get, right? You've got to experience that. And that is also data. And so to me, like, I think using data to sort of live your customer's experience, using data to understand the metrics and sort of see like, okay, what is happening? Where are they dropping off? What's going on? Is how you build intuition and it's how all your decisions should be made. I think the other aspect of data is just being disciplined and hitting metrics and understanding costs and all of that stuff. And I think there's a rich, it's really interesting. Even at a company like Google, every team is very different, but I think by and large, we have pretty decent culture around sort of using data and being data driven and driving things forward. Yeah, and going back to your point about latching on to specific inputs or outputs, it's also really important to avoid that analytics theater, as I call it, where mm -hmm. it's uh, one of my previous managers said- Analytics theater, I like that phrase. Exactly. exactly, it's like, you know, not being data rich decision poor is yes. really key, right? Because a lot of times people look at one little bump in let's say in all time, you see a little bump of thing. It's like, ah, oh, causation, causation. Yes. Of <laughs> I've been in those meetings. Yeah. And then, what do you do? No, no, I, I remember there was, the, there's a really strong PM in my team who unfortunately was, was on a product for a while where the data was extremely unreliable. And I remember he once came and he's like, look at this crazy growth. And I was like, you know, from this team, I just assume it's a logging bug. But if you're if you're convinced that it's not, can you come and tell me in a couple of days? And he's like, no, no, it was actually growth. And but 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 it took him like a week. I was like, oh, I'm fairly certain this is like a logging bug. Uh, <laughs> because you know, often it was. Yeah, yeah. I, no, but I to your point, I have I think what you're saying is true, right? There's this sort of we've we've I love your phrase analytics theater because it's perfect. Like it describes many sort of large meetings have been in where everyone stares at their dashboard or it's in a slide and you go like, oh, look at this. Like, what does this mean? And you're like, no, actually we can, we can figure it out. It can be a smaller group. So I've a hundred percent seen that. I, I love that. I also know, speaking of presenting things, you have been so gracious of your time. I wanted to maybe leave a minute for a segment that I just came up in my head as we were talking, which is a rapid fire round. Uh -oh. <laughs> So let's maybe start. Maybe I'll give you five questions to answer. So okay. number one, what is your favorite breakfast that you have before you start your day? Oh, I had a, so I, I don't have it every day, but some days there's a Google cafe that serves chicken congee and I don't get it at home. And so I make sure I go there because it's hard. Like I, I don't even make it at home. So I go there, I get chicken congee. I put a bunch of like fried onion things, a bunch of sriracha sauce. And so once a week, that's that's what I end up end up. I think that's my like favorite breakfast if I can swing it to that cafe once a week. Wow, I'm jealous. Number two, what is the most recent book you've read? What is the most recent? I just actually I sort of it's I just started it. It's over here. It's it's Steve Martin's autobiography. I just started this one. Yeah. I haven't finished it. So I'm sort of like I'd say a third of the way in. Okay, well. Favorite lasso quote that you have? Be curious, not judgmental. That is, it's well, it, technically, I guess it's not. It is, I guess, a Walt Whitman quote that like Ted Lasso uses, but that is my favorite Ted Lasso quote. Okay, coffee or tea? Neither. 
I, I, I drink neither. I think this is my source of, of caffeine, Diet Coke. <laughs> well, that's also another, I should add that. Diet Coke, coffee or tea. Coffee or tea, yeah. <laughs> Lastly, what is one advice you'd give to someone who's looking to level up in their PM career or break into peak product? Both are both are slightly different, right? Which is, so if you're breaking into product, I think the the easiest thing to do is find ways to already sort of start doing the job. Because I think there isn't, you know, unlike, unlike engineering, there isn't like a, you know, sort of do these courses, get through these technical interviews and you're in sort of piece. So I think the key is starting to develop product intuition, either starting to work with engineers or other product teams to show like, I have customer insight or I sort of can help you with these things is really important. So finding ways to do the job before you have the job is I think is key. And sometimes you need to do it through side projects. Sometimes if you're in school, you do it through like something on the side. Like I, I think that's that's really important. I think to level up, I think there's an element of like, um, I always ask people like, it's important to understand where you want to go with your career before you figure out what the level up answer is, right? Which is is there a particular domain that you want to go in to, or is there like you've decided I want to be this kind of PM, but then you have need to understand, okay, what am I missing? Am I, do I need more UX skills? Am I someone that like needs to communicate better? Am I someone that needs to be better at strategy? And what is the job? I always tell people like, think about what is the job you want five years from now and say like, okay, how do I get there? I think that's a good way to think about leveling up because that's, That'll sort of guide you because otherwise I, I worry that everyone sort of thinks about, okay, how do I just get promoted? Which sometimes is the right thing, but very often, or like go to another job where, you know, I'm paid a little bit more or it seems a little, a little better. That could be the right thing, but very often that's not. I think it's worth thinking about what is it that I actually want and what's a path that'll help me get there. Amazing advice. Thank you, Sadujit. Is there a place that people can find you if they wanted to chat or read more about your I'm trying to get better at my Substack. I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter a bunch. So on Twitter, I'm I'm Salgar. My last name is my handle. I guess I, call, I should call it X now. Whatever it is, I still call it Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn as Salgar. Yeah, I think those are the places to find me. Sounds good. I'll drop your links in the bio if anyone wants to reach out. Thank you so much for joining us, Deed. Like this was. Thank you. This was great. I really enjoyed. I always love talking products, and this is a great conversation. 